0: Now, every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, and when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And he said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you know, not know that I must be in my Father's house? This is the word of the Lord. I've told you that during this liturgical year, I'm going to be preaching from the gospel according to St. Luke. From time to time, I will remind you about how Luke begins his gospel. He addresses it to someone named Theophilus. That may be a real person in Luke's time. It could have been a patron, someone who was providing this very expensive writing material, someone who was providing a place for him to sleep, food for him to eat, while he produced two rather lengthy scrolls, one of them the Gospel according to St. Luke, the other the Acts of the Apostles, dipping, dipping, dipping a quill into ink and producing these two long documents. But the word Theophilus could be a combination simply of two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and Philios, uh, meaning uh, love or friendship. It could simply be addressed to dear friend of God. The important thing is what he says to Theophilus about what he's setting out to do. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have already been instructed. So Theophilus is a believer... Now Luke is going to help him believe even better. So he's aware of these other Gospels. He follows the basic outline of Mark, and he has some of the same teaching material peculiar to his writing and that of Matthew. Rarely does he have anything that's peculiar to both him and John. Occasionally, he has something that only he has, and this is such a story. No one else tells us anything at all about the childhood of Jesus. Mark and John begin promptly with the baptism of Jesus by John and his calling disciples. Uh, Matthew has the story of the Magi. I'll deal with that next Sunday morning. Luke has shepherds uh, abiding in their field with an angelic chorus bidding them come to Bethlehem. But only Luke has this story about his being a little boy, 12 years old. Let's take a look. Number one, Luke wants you to understand right from the start that Jesus' parents were observant Jews. They have him circumcised on the eighth day. They bring him to the temple to be blessed. Every year they make that long trek from Nazareth down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. It's a hard five-day walk. And when Jesus is 12, they bring him as well. Obviously, these are faithful followers of Israel's God, and they are seeing to the religious education of their son. On this new year, first day, I want you to stop and think with me about how important the religious education of our children and grandchildren really is. I don't know any parents or grandparents who get up in the morning and ask their child, "Do you feel like going to school today? Do you feel like studying English today? Do you feel like studying American history today? Do you feel like studying mathematics today?" But some of those same people ask their children, "Do you want to go to Sunday school? You want to go to church?" You want to go to youth activities? You want to go to choir practice on Wednesday night? Uh, My child doesn't want to. My grandchild doesn't really like to. We send them to the classes we believe are important. Now, if that's English, American history, mathematics, and not religious education, you let that child grow up believing he or she will understand our faith, you are wrong. They will not understand the faith if they have not been taught. Thanksgiving, we went down to see my family again. We go down Indian Nation Turnpike to Paris. At Paris, there's a loop around town. They didn't do it very well. They still have stoplights on the loop when they should have had overpasses. You know, my hometown got it right. You go to Carthage, they got a loop. It goes over and under all the major highways. In Paris, you have to stop. When you get around to the southeastern part of the city, if you go straight as the loop is going, you will go to Sulphur Springs. If you turn left, you go to Mount Pleasant. That's the way we go home to Carthage. I've been to Sulphur Springs. I gave the commencement address there some years ago at the high school. One of the guys on my football team in high school ended up being a teacher in the Sulphur Springs school. So I was interested recently when I read a story written by a young woman in Sulphur Springs named Wendy Johnson. Wendy said that just about this time last year, when Christmas was really over at their house, when they had taken all the decorations off the tree, stored them properly, and tossed the tree out to the curb for somebody to pick it up, they went to church again the next Sunday. And when it was time to go home, their little five-year-old said, Mom, come. And she hurried. He sounded almost frantic about it. He went into his Sunday school class, walked over to a big waste can, and pointed and said, Look! And when she looked in the waste basket, there was a little Christmas tree, a little potted Christmas tree that somebody obviously felt had now served its purpose, into the trash. And he said, Mom, could we take it home? said, well, obviously it's been discarded, and yeah, I guess we can take it home. And she said, as we drove home, I could hear him in the back seat talking to this little tree. We're going to take care of you, he said. We're going to help you get well. When we got home, she said, I started pruning off the little limbs that were definitely dead. In fact, I found only two that seemed to have any resiliency at all. I mean, talk about a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. We had it here. The potting soil was hard as a rock, she said. So I soaked it really well in good fresh water and then set the whole thing up in the kitchen window where the morning sun could reach it. Every morning when I was preparing breakfast, here came my little five-year-old running in there to check on the tree. It wasn't showing much improvement. So one day he said, Mom, could we pray for it? And I said, well, it couldn't hurt. And so we said a little prayer for the Christmas tree. But before I could check it every morning, he was checking it. And one morning he said, Mom, look, you're not going to believe this. And there were two tiny little sprouts right at the top of the tree. And she said, I hugged him. I hugged him because I knew... In that Sunday school class, he had learned something important. That God is not happy when anything dies. God is happy when things live. God is not happy when things are discarded. God is happy when things are cherished. God is happy when things are cared for, prayed for, looked after. I knew he was learning. He was learning. Number two. Second thing about this story is the number of times you have the word search. They start home after the festival of Passover, they're walking along, great numbers of people streaming northward out of Jerusalem. Family and friends, they assume this 12-year-old boy is playing with his friends, darting in and out, but they get to the late afternoon. It's time to camp down for the night. He's not there. Takes them another day to walk all the way back. They search that third day through the city. I mean, think of all the places he might have been. At the temple? At the temple? That's where they found him at the end of the third day. Luke says this word four times. They look for him. They search for him. Didn't you know we'd been searching for you? Why were you searching for me, he asked. You get right to the middle of Luke's great scroll, and he says, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, Which of you, if you have a hundred sheep, and come to the end of the day and count them, and find that you have only ninety-nine, does not leave the ninety and nine and go looking for the one that's lost. Which of you women loses a coin, does not search, sweep and search and sweep and search until you find it? Once upon a time, there was a father who had two sons, and the younger one came to his father and said, I want my inheritance now took it and wasted it. How long the father looked and searched and looked and searched and one day he saw him coming home. Luke wants you to think about this business of searching. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Dr. P.C. Innes is a retired Presbyterian preacher who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been writing down some of the things he remembers best about his own ministry. One of the stories he wrote was about a time years ago when he was an associate pastor in a big downtown Presbyterian church in Atlanta. He said it was almost Christmas. We were in a location where lots of people came by our church wanting handouts, particularly at Christmas, And we were doing everything we could to meet as many needs as possible. About four days before Christmas, he said, I was in my office trying to get my sermon ready when a secretary buzzed me and said, there's a man here who wants to see you. I knew we'd given out all the funds we had, but I went down the hall expecting to see a street person, someone who might have slept in a cardboard box the night before, but instead... I saw a young man, clean shaved, hair combed, clean clothes. I walked over to him, said, how may I help you? And he said, I want you to bless me. He said, I explained to him, uh, that's not what Presbyterians do, he said. That's what Catholics do. That's what Episcopalians do, maybe. That's what the Eastern Orthodox may do. We Presbyterians... I don't think we give out blessings. And he said, This young man just dropped to his knees on the carpet and said, I want you to bless me. So I asked, What's your name, son? He said, Andy. So he, I put my hands on his head and I said, God, Andy seems to be searching for something really important. You know what it is. And you want people who search to find. So we pray you will help Andy find what he's searching for and that what he's searching for is the right thing. I said, Amen. He stood up. His eyes were moist. He shook my hand, walked out. I never saw him again. I don't know exactly what he was looking for. But I believe God answers that that prayer. May we be searching for the right thing, and when we search, may we find. Number three. Luke will tell us, Jesus will tell us, what great rejoicing there is when the lost has been found. Finding that 100th sheep He puts it over his shoulders and takes it home to be with all the others. Finding that lost coin, she shouts and tells everybody in the house how thrilled she is. When the prodigal comes down the road, the father runs out to meet him, falls on his neck and kisses him, orders a big party be given. The one for whom we've searched the horizon so very long, the one who was dead has been found. He is alive, truly alive. It's been hard to read a newspaper or magazine the last couple of weeks that somebody has not been writing about old Lang Syne. Seen any of the articles? There was one very good one I thought in the Wall Street Journal. Last night while I was brushing my teeth, I heard somebody on the news, a little television behind me there talking about so many people sing this song and they don't have a clue what they're singing. It's because, of course, it's written in the pen of Robert Burns, a Scottish poet of almost 250 years ago. Robert Burns was born, the biographers say, to tenant farmers. You know what we call those in America? Sharecroppers. His mother and father were sharecroppers who worked hard to eke out a meager living for their children and had to give half of everything they produced to the landowner. But they knew the importance of education, and they did what they could at a time when there was no public education to help young Robbie learn how to read and write. And once he learned how to read and write, he started writing poetry. By the time he was 27, he was published for the first time. But not many people buy books of poetry, not like bestsellers of some kind. He spent his first check pretty quickly. He had a wife and children. In fact, his wife would bear nine children, and six of them would die in childbirth and early childhood. Six out of nine died. Robert Burns, to try to support his family, had to go to work in a tax office. Yeah, working for a tax collector, writing poetry. He drank a lot. He died when he was 37. Some think when he was a boy, he might have had rheumatic fever. That that might have weakened his heart. Others think he could have had cirrhosis of the liver he drank so much. He died on the day his last son was born. And friends gathered up anything and everything he had ever written to try to publish something that would give his wife and children money to live on. But he wrote down old Lang Syne. He said he heard an old man sing it one time. No one's ever found record of it before Robert Burns. Some have theorized that it was so well put together in the Scottish language that probably he didn't hear it just like he wrote it, probably made it even better. Last night in Times Square, many different parts of the world, they were singing the words. I looked up several different translations. They're all a little bit different. But that Robert Burns found this interesting, helpful, hopeful Scotland was undergoing a terrible time in its own history. The English were absorbing it into their own country. It would not be a separate country for years and years and years. Robert Burns had seen one child after another of his die and die and die and die. And And friends had come and gone. And he was trying to eke out a living working for a tax collector. So he wrote down the words. He said he heard an old man sing one day. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and days of old long past? But there is a hand, my trusty friend, and give me a hand of yours, and we will take a goodwill drink for old long past. For old long past, my joy, for old long past, we will take a cup of kindness yet for old When the lost are found. When the dead are alive again. Number four. Luke gives us the first words we have from Jesus. Why were you searching for me? Did you not know? And it says literally in Greek. That I must be about the things of my father. Notice two important things there. One. Luke says he was already calling the God of all creation, Abba, my Father, my Father. One night in the garden, he would pray,
1: my Father,
0: not this cup, please. He would pray, my Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. My Father... Into your heads I commit my spirit. Hmm. But this is also the first time we have him say, Did you not know that I must be about the things of my Father? That to know oneself accepted of God, to know oneself, son or daughter of the Almighty, is to know their obligations? There are things we're supposed to do and other things we're supposed not to do. The first time Gail and I went to Seville in in Spain, it was 112 degrees. It's really hard to concentrate on much of anything when it's 112 degrees. But they do have some wonderful museums there and some beautiful places. There was a famous painter in Seville, grew up in a small village uh, out in, in, in the hinterlands of Spain, but eventually became the best-known artist of his time. His name was Francisco Zoroban. Some believe that he had opportunity to study with the great Velazquez, and perhaps even that he got to know the famed Italian Caravaggio. When he was 29 years old, Zoroban, painted one called Christ on the Cross. It's magnificent. It was brought to Chicago and was on display there for a long time. At 29, this artist pictured Jesus hanging on the cross. It's really graphic, powerful, amazing. One year later, he painted again St. Serapion, St. Serapion was born 800 years ago. When he was a teenage boy, his father was going to join the Third Crusade and thought his son was old enough to come along and fight the infidels. And so from a teenager's viewpoint, Serapion saw the horrors of war. Again and again he saw the horrors of war. And at 34, he decided God was calling him to go a different direction. He became a monk of a particular order that saw how the Moors were taking Christians in northern Africa as hostages. And this particular order, one after the other, would volunteer to surrender himself in place of a hostage who could go home to wife and kids. Again and again, St. Serapion offered himself in place of others. Eventually, he went as a missionary to England. That was unfortunate because a group of English pirates caught him one day, wanted no part of this business of Christianity. They tied him to a tree, disemboweled him, slit his throat after beating him savagely, and of course, he died. 400 years later, he was already a saint when Zoroban was painting, and he painted Saint Serapion. You can see the bruises on the face. You can tell from the angle of the head that something's not working properly. He's definitely dead. The hands are tied up to make him look like the crucifix, if you would, a cruciform. But look at the robe not a spot of blood on it. It's white, white, white. The celebratory color of the coming of our Lord. The color of the resurrection described in the book of Revelation. The color of Jesus with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. The color of that young messenger who spoke to the women at the tomb, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has been raised. If one follows the crucified and resurrected one, if one understands that we too must be about the things of our Father, there is no guarantee, Zerubbabel is saying, that all will go well in the short term. But in the eternity of God, all goes well.